1: Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Well, this week is rent week on the spin off, and so I have some stories about renting, but also a massive new innovation that could change the rental landscape in Aotearoa, New Zealand. When I came back from overseas in 2003, I thought, wow, we'll give ourselves some time to rent before we look to see if we could buy. Remember, this was a completely different era. 2003, you could still sort of just afford to buy a house without too much trouble and certainly without shaking your mum and dad by the shoulders and asking them for money. And it meant renting for a bit. But I thought that would be fine. We had rented in Australia and in the UK and in Singapore, and we'd never been turfed out or had any problems. Well. In Auckland in 2003, within six months, we were asked to leave, not because we were bad tenants, of course, but because the landlord was coming back from Australia, and this was his actual house, and he wanted to move back in, fair enough. So we moved to another place, and we were just settling in, we'd put our daughters into the school around the corner, we were starting to think about doing the gardening, and then bang, along comes the landlord, the market's hot. They're going to sell it so we have a whole bunch of real estate agents around it wasn't a fun time I can tell you and eventually we were forced into buying simply because renting was so painful now this is a uh, a story of privilege in a way because back in two thousand and three four and because of our situation having previously owned other homes, we had the privilege of being able to afford to buy, of having that choice. Now, after a massive increase in prices since then, and of course, with many uh, younger people renting and having to pay student loans and really struggling, uh, that choice is just not there. And people are having to deal with uh, living in private rentals, which is not only expensive, Remember, we have the most expensive private rentals in the world relative to income. Of those people in the lowest 20% of the population, more than 50% are spending almost half of their disposable income on rent and remember the ideal level is more like 25 to 30 percent so we have the most rent stress in the world relative to income we've got a real problem not just in terms of housing affordability which is often framed as a problem of either having a deposit or being able to find a house that's affordable but the sheer issue of finding a house that is affordable to rent and also not particularly painful to rent and stable and secure and warm and dry. And how do we do that? Now, the solution up until now is to get mum and dad investor to pay for the rental. That's either by building a whole new house in a suburb on a section But that has its problems as well, because remember, we actually need a lot more people to be living closer to the centre of town, being able to jump on a bike or walk to work or school or play. That's what we need, and of course, when you're in the suburbs, that's much harder to do, apart from the fact it's often more expensive to live in these bigger places, the three, four-bedroom homes. If you want to live by yourself, or maybe it's just a couple, or maybe you're retired, you want a one, two-bedroomed apartment or townhouse, something like that, somewhere close to the centre of town, and we just don't have enough of them particularly ones that are run by mum and dad investors. They prefer to buy single homes, often that's all they can afford as well, but the risk for someone who is a mum and dad investor in looking to build a 10-unit, 20-unit medium density development is just too high, and so we're not seeing the development of those. So what we actually need is lots, and um, when I say lots and lots, I'm not talking five or 10, I'm talking 50 or 100,000 medium density apartments and townhouses in our biggest cities. And who's going to do it? Well, Kangalora is doing quite a bit, but they're really targeting the social housing end of the market for people who are in deep stress, living in motels right now, and there's only so much they can do. The question is, how do we activate and put a lot of the patient capital that's sitting around the world? And when I say patient capital, I'm talking about pension funds, the New Zealand superannuation fund, all those KiwiSaver funds, well over $100 billion in New Zealand now, but also trillions of dollars overseas. How do we mobilize that patient capital and help it help us to solve our housing affordability crisis and our rental affordability crisis. Well, there is a way. Build to rent. Now this is an idea that came out of the United Kingdom uh, about 10 or 20 years ago in which patient capital, pension funds would build a an apartment block It might be 15, 20, 100 apartments specifically to last 100 years and to provide secure, affordable rentals for people who might be comfortable staying in a rental place for a long time. Maybe they want to spend five or 10 years saving a deposit for their own home, or maybe they're retired and they don't have to worry about having to paint the roof or fix the water cylinder every now and again. And that has made a huge difference in the UK, adding tens and tens of thousands of new dwelling units in those big cities where people have struggled to find places to live in the past. And of course, we've seen it also in Australia, in Sydney and Melbourne CBD, where people are able to uh, build these huge projects and bring those one and two bedroomed apartment rents down. How do we do it in Aotearoa, New Zealand? There is a huge opportunity here, and this week in When the Facts Change, we talked to Helen O'Sullivan, the CEO of Crocker's, who outlines this opportunity and paints a new picture of what life could be as someone living in a build to rent project, not just another tenant in another cold, mouldy, private rental. I'm Bernard Hickey for When the Facts Change. This week, it's all about bill to rent Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change, Helen O'Sullivan, who is the CEO of Crockers. Great to have you here in the spin-off studios.
0: Kia ora. Bernard, it's fantastic to be here.
1: Now, you and I have been at a conference for the last couple of days all about how to solve some of our housing issues, and in particular, densify and build lots of really warm, dry, affordable apartments one, two, maybe even three-bedroomed places close to transport, close to schools, where we play, so that in the future, you know, 10, 20, 100 years' time, we're not spending all our money on energy, we're not um, producing lots of carbon emissions. And in New Zealand, typically, we build these houses on the fringes of town on standalone sections with three-car garages and lots of commuting time. But there is another way. But firstly, could you... Talk about what you're doing right now and um, what brings you to this area of build to rent.
0: Okay, so I'm Chief Executive of Crockett's. We are a property services company based in Auckland. We do residential and commercial property management. We have a portfolio of around about 4,000 residential tenancies that we manage. Uh, We've got around about 200 commercial tenancies. We also... Uh, have a body corporate division which manages around about a thousand bodies corporate uh, or community living entities uh, as we prefer to call them Uh, and we have a small real estate sales practice alongside as well so our core business is all about people and property within that residential tenancy uh, portfolio we've got around about 500 uh, properties that are what we call built to rent as in they are owned by uh, someone who holds them for the sole purpose of retaining them for long-term residential accommodation uh, without you know, a short-term capital gain.
1: And when I think about rentals, I typically think standalone, mouldy, cold, home in the suburbs owned by a mum and dad investor and I'm still waiting for them to fix the uh, water cylinder or I'm thinking a sausage flat, uh, maybe bricks and tiles, but tell me, what is built to rent in terms of uh, how it's being done in the UK, and even how it started to be done here?
0: Well, built to rent can refer to standalone homes in the UK, the US. They sort of call that they call that single family homes. But by and large, it is in um, reasonably medium to high density developments. Uh, so the five hundred or so that we manage are all in. Um, high density developments we've got one called the orange uh, which is in Newton gully it's named after the orange coronation hall which forms part of the of the development and they are. We like to call them vertical villages. That's sort of what we aim for in the communities that we manage. That there is that sense of community. There is. There's space. Mark Todd loves to call them bump spaces um, within the Ockham developments. Yeah, they are designed to foster that sense of community and integration. Uh, and because they are owned by people who want to long term have happy tenants who stay a long time, you basically the customer becomes very much the the home occupant, the renter. You know, within our rental portfolio, um, we're at pains to ensure that we do treat the tenants as our customers, um, but it can be a failing in the residential property management market that the landlord is treated as the customer and the home occupier gets forgotten you know, the core thing about the bill to rent is that if your home occupiers are unhappy they're not going to stay so as the investor you are fundamentally interested in the experience that your home occupiers have uh, they are the customers uh, and that's how they are managed
1: because the ethos of being a, a landlord if you like in the new zealand tradition is that you sort of don't care too much about the tenant as long as they keep paying the bills or actually the building itself, because um, they're expensive to maintain and they weren't really built to be um, rented out for many, many years of people moving in and out. And therefore, actually, I was most interested in the leveraged gain in the value of the land underneath the house. So I'm trying, struggling to work out why would a large investor want to put tens of millions of dollars aside for a, a property that's going to be rented out to people potentially for a long term, when the whole point I would have thought of being a rental property investor is to buy and flake, buy and flake, wait for the land price to go up and then capture the tax-free capital gains.
0: Back up a track <laughs> just a tiny bit. I think you you do have a particularly dim view of something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, unquestionably I'm around. I the devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Look. Um, a number of the landlords that we work with are very much interested. Yeah, they're long-term holders. Uh, you know, the survey we do with Tony Alexander says they plan to hold for ten years or more. Despite, or you know, in addition to that, there's a large segment of the New Zealand rental market which is people who are incidental landlords. So I'm living in Australia, uh, but I want to retain my property in Auckland for when I come back, or I am holding this as a retirement uh, income and when I get to retirement, I'm going to sell it to realise funds for my retirement. Uh, And, you know, with the net result that the the occupants get dislodged rather frequently. And this is a piece of research that we've done on our own portfolio and identified that around about 2% of our portfolio, the, the tenant, over the last 12 months, the tenant was asked to move out because the landlord was moving back in. Uh, And around about 5% of our properties were sold out of our residential tenancy portfolio uh, because the landlord sold them. Now, many of those sales and that 5% will have been the landlord taking advantage of a break in tenants um, to sell, but others of them will have been that the tenant will have been given notice uh, and the property vacated and and sold.
1: And this has been one of the issues for a lot of private rentals is that, families might find a house that they actually really like and they're starting to connect with the communities and and the kids are in the school. And then for no evil reason, the landlord has decided, you know, changing their circumstances or it's time to to liquidate because they want to uh, downscale or there's something else going on. And so out you go. And uh, from memory, the average rollover time for people in a private rental can be around the one or two year mark. Uh, and uh, that makes it difficult to really uh, connect and causes issues with transients in schools. Tell us why build-to-rent can help alleviate some of that that stress and that issue with turnover.
0: So that's where build-to-rent can have that incredibly um, beneficial aspect. And I think it's something that that is kind of lost in, in that uh, it's very subtle and it's kind of below the surface. But the key thing that Belterin offers the resident is security of tenure because you know that the owner is not going to sell the property in any short term. They're not going to move back in. The owners tend to be uh, either high net worth individuals or institutions. Uh, and so they've got, you know, they're not going to move back in. You're not going to get moved out for that reason. Uh, and if the property is sold, its purpose is that of long-term rental. So it will be sold with the tenancies in situ. So rather than um, secure tenure, as in maybe I've got a five or a 10-year lease, I have got security of the continuity of my tenure.
1: It's the expectation that you know, there isn't someone who's about to fly back from London and there isn't someone who for their own good reasons needs to to move on. You're talking about a pension fund who's looking for an asset that's gonna last 50, 100 years and that's gonna give a low volatility return a bit like a bond yield, yep. I suppose, and the attraction for that investor is the ability to get a regular return. And you know that um, the rent is the thing that people will pay <laughs> to well, make there sure is, they stay.
0: Yeah, to go back to your earlier question, which we, we, we forgot to answer, which is around why would an investor want to, to invest in this class? Um, it is, it's low return, but it is incredibly reliable return. Yeah, during the pandemic, you know the orange, uh, which is a great case in point, is um, partly commercial and partly residential. During COVID, anybody who asked us for some kind of rent relief was given some form of rent relief in the residential section. We looked at how much they were getting. You know, they, got, they said, hey, I'm on the, the the subsidy. We went, right, let's do a deal how much you need to eat great okay we we'll just and we we just made it so and as a percentage of the income from that the commercial we lost a we were, it was very painful uh, the amount of rent relief that was necessary to keep our tenants going there but on the residential side it was a tiny proportion and we gave everybody who asked for it uh, rent relief, as, in fact, incidentally, every single one of our landlords who was asked for rent relief um, by a residential tenant during COVID did. Um, so, you know, let's put that in the bank of landlords aren't all bad people. <laughs> <laughs> but from the point of view of the, um, you know, just it is, you might not be earning 20%, but you will keep earning your 2 to 4%. You know, as long as the property is good quality, it will continue to rent.
1: That point of having mixed use for a building is really interesting too because one of the uh, complaints about some uh, larger apartment buildings is it's a big chunk of apartment buildings plonked there and it may be quite a, a walk or a, a trip to all the services that go around that. Whereas these uh, built-to-rent projects often can be combined, commercial and residential. Cafes underneath, maybe it's laundromats, I don't know. There's a whole bunch of services around them and community building places that Make it more attractive.
0: That's a really good point. If you think about when um, somebody develops an area and you master plan a suburb and it looks fabulous in the lovely architect's pictures uh, and then you develop it and and you sell it down and uh, unfortunately what happens is that the person who buys that one rather than putting in that lovely cafe that was in the pictures decides to, you know, Make it an office and that person, you know, you never actually get. When you control the entire development and you continue to control the entire development, you get the ability to curate the entire experience that the occupants get. Uh, and it is, that can be a really powerful um, experience again it means you're providing the occupants of your vertical village uh, with a really positive experience and again too if you're looking for a reasonable level of density you will want to put that somewhere that is convenient for a lot of people you know so these developments will tend to be in places like Newton Gully which is near the um, the the uh, one of the CRL stations, Mount Eden. <laughs> you know, you'll tend to put them in places where they are well located for good amenity uh, and transit oriented. Your Kiwi Property, for example, are doing towers in their Sylvia Park development, uh, which you know you've got everything there. That's the whole. That's the original fifteen minute city. You've got the trains, you've got entertainment, you've got offices. Uh, you could live your entire life there and not actually have to leave the same square kilometer. When
1: the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa.
0: Our slowing economy
1: gives way to higher unemployment and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As
0: consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows and we expect
1: that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses.
0: Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment?
1: It seems quite a foreign concept to a lot of um, people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that you could have an investor who actually wanted to build a large building for tenants and to make it a fun place to be, um, uh, including the likes of events managers and facilities managers, which you don't often see necessarily with with rental projects.
0: No, you don't. Um, But again, it's very rare... In the New Zealand context, we have uh, that single owner. In most buildings that have a significant rental presence, uh, they've been sold down by the developer. Maybe 50% of them are owned by owner-occupiers and the other 50% are owned by investors. And those investors will generally have a whole different sprinkling of managers. One of the key features of the built-to-rent development is you have professional management of the entire complex. Uh, So there is that ability to actually manage the whole complex uh, with a view to the amenity and the comfort of everyone in the complex. Uh, and And also to do that community building stuff, you know, to actually set up the Christmas tree and invite people down to wear silly hats and sing bad Christmas carols, uh, and you know to organise the Halloween. You're selling party. it to me. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> it it just it the whole idea is that you create a place that's fun and funky, and people want to come to, and hopefully you create an integrated community as well. Yeah, you know, one of the developments that. Um, we manage as a bill to rent uh, is up in Albany and it's been in existence for about 15 years sort of before bill to rent had an acronym in fact Uh, and we have a couple of residents there who have been there almost since the development was completed and they are kind of the grandfather of the community you know everybody knows um we'll call him bob everybody knows bob he knows what days the bins go out he's our eyes and ears as the manager uh will alert us if there's anything going wrong um you know let us know if there's things that we need to fix it just there's a real kind of connection and connectivity, he keeps an eye on some of the younger younger residents who can get a bit excitable. Um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a really nice kind of virtuous circle.
1: And that's the thing that's missing at, at a large scale in our private rental market is patient capital. People who um, actually want an asset that uh, they want to generate income for 40, 50 years or so. We're having a debate at the moment about, in particular, uh, the area of interest deductibility. The uh, Labor government has obviously wanted to slow down and make less attractive to mum and dad investors who are using equity from their own homes to get into rental properties and have uh, removed the ability for them to claim interest as a tax deductible expense. Apart from new builds for a period... And now the question is, what about bill to rent? Because in theory, as a government, you'd want to encourage this to go forward. Uh, Tell us where we are in that process in terms of uh, ensuring that this interest deductibility move aimed at mum and dad rental investors doesn't uh, accidentally take out the bill to rent.
0: Yeah, look, it has been a bit of a challenge uh, for that corporate sector because the thing is, that fundamentally, the the returns on this area are modest. Uh, they're modest, but they're reliable. Uh, But there's such a thing as too modest when it comes to returns. (laughs) Ultimately, we're talking about the provision of residential accommodation as a commercial exercise. So exactly the same as student accommodation, for example, uh, which has its own category within the Tax Act and is eligible for depreciation and interest deductibility and GST, etc. It's basically commercial property. Uh, And I guess... When you are a long-term investor and you're assessing build-to-rent as an asset category, you are lining it up against all other commercial ways in which you can invest in other asset categories and other commercial, other property categories. And so you're looking at retail, um, you're looking at commercial property, you're looking at office, you're looking at warehousing, and then you're going, well, here's this residential piece on the side. And strangely, the first four or five you are treated as commercial, and this fifth one has a completely different tax treatment. Uh, and when you're talking about, you know, the difference between you know returns of two percent and two and a half percent, that makes a really big difference. So the interest deductibility piece was uh, quite or is quite challenging for that class, and the the ability to deduct it on on um, existing was one challenge it was one thing having it as new for new builds but it was not transferable and the challenge with that is that as your asset ages you know these are things you mean you're investing in for 50 to 100 years 20 years is actually only 20 percent of the uh, the intended life of the asset and secondly from a valuation perspective um The fact that I have a right, which is the right to deduct interest, but I can't transfer it, means that from a valuation perspective, the valuer has to ignore the benefit that that right confers on me. So if I drop dead and my newly built asset, sort of seven years old, has to be sold to somebody else, Bernard doesn't get the next 13 years worth of deductibility if he purchases that asset off me.
1: And so when I'm doing the sums as the potential um, investor and builder, um, it's not so attractive and I might not go ahead with it.
0: Well, correct. And also it gives you a challenge with your financing. So if you are intending to gear it to any extent, when the valuer comes along and values it, uh, she has to go, well, sorry, Helen, Your asset's not worth, they're valuing it on the basis of the income stream from it. uh, And they're saying, well, your income stream, if you have to transfer it to burn it, uh, drops away by this much because we can't claim the interest deductibility.
1: So the government is um, giving an exemption for uh, the interest deductibility, but still um, depreciation, which was taken off, uh, uh, rental property investors a few years ago but not commercial property investors and also as you say for uh, student apartment investors they are they also have access to claim GST off. So simply the, the the way to most encourage these built to rents would be to treat them the same way as student departments are treated, in that they're a commercial property where you can claim depreciation, you can claim interest, and you can also claim GST. Is that right?
0: Yeah, look, I would completely agree with that. And, and it is the treatment that we've been um, arguing for, a number of us who are interested in this part of the sector. Because... Uh, the, the changes that are currently being contemplated do create build-to-rent as a category within the Tax Act, which is a hugely important step forward because once you define a thing, you can start to actually attach both conditions to it as to what makes that thing that thing uh, and then what are the treatments that, that also go with it. Uh, so that is that is of great value. But, it you know... If If you've ever been in a student accommodation building, you'll know it's a pretty good argument that the uh, fit-out depreciates.
1: Yes, (laughs) (laughs) it does happen.
0: And look, the same thing happens in a residential building. And again, if I own it, the removal of depreciation made a big difference where in a situation where you're holding a property reaping a reasonably significant capital gain on sale. Look, I can see the argument for it. In a situation where your intention is to hold that building for the long term, again, as the investor, if you want to keep retaining the quality of tenants, et cetera, you're going to have to keep refurbishing and spending money on, on maintenance. And if you're sitting there uh, in a situation, you're going, hang on a second, look at my P&L. I'm losing money because my depreciation, uh, which I book every year, puts me into this position, but I'm, I'm paying tax. How, how can that kind of make sense?
1: And you gave an example at the conference we attended of Bob uh, in Albany who... Um, is so happy in the place he doesn't leave and that's yeah. a problem because <laughs> normally, want to... normally when he leaves you, you, you refit and redo the carpets and the curtains and stuff and and you have to find another solution there. Well
0: that's right and look you know, again if you want to retain good tenants, if you want them to love the, their homes, if you want them to treat them well, then you will keep them in a good condition uh, and that means giving them a refit. And we tend to give them a birthday every five to ten years uh, and usually we can do that on a churn in tenancy. Uh, and it's great having a long-term tenant, but yeah, sometimes find you of have to paint around them.
1: And this idea of build-to-rent is a particular way to help solve our housing supply crisis, but to do it in a way which means that tenants uh, can feel secure, that they're in a, um, a comfortable and well-maintained place. Which they might want to stay in for a long time and develop a culture of being a renter. Which in New Zealand traditionally, if you were a renter, you were a bit of a you were seen as a second class citizen. I don't think that's right, but that's the way that New Zealand developed in part because of the troubles um, staying in in rental properties and um, because of our um, lauding of the whole home ownership as the way to glory um, thing. Uh, I I wonder whether uh, this build-to-rent category helps provide another pathway for us to solve this housing supply crisis.
0: I think one of the main drivers behind home ownership as being the thing to which you aspire is that lack of security of tenure. I bought my first home because I got kicked out of 10 flats over a space of two and a bit years, and I just wanted a lime tree and a cat. (laughs) Seriously. And that's why I bought a home because I couldn't have a place to call home and have a cat in a lime tree uh, unless I bought my own place. And, you know, we I had particularly unfortunate luck uh, with, you know, difficult flatmates, none of whom have turned up as the MP for Tauranga so far.
1: Uh, good. <laughs> 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 and to give people an idea of the scale and the potential here, uh, one of the people in the room when the phrase build-to-rent uh, was invented was a P- Paul Winstanley, who uh, was in New Zealand but is now in the UK with JLL. And uh, he reports back that the number of uh, build-to-rent projects has really expanded dramatically in the UK in the mm-hmm. last 10 to 20 years. Can you give us an idea of the, the scale of it? Because it's very hard for people to imagine, you know, it could be quite a big deal.
0: Yeah, so the numbers that Paul was talking about yesterday, um, I think there's around about 50,000 completed units since I think 2013 from a zero base. Uh, and there's around about one hundred and fifty to 170,000 units in the pipeline, uh, either under construction or kind of in the planning process. When I did some rough maths on this, about 24 and a bit million housing units in the UK, combined those two add up to about 1% of their housing stock. Um, which is, you know, in anybody's language, a, a, it's an it's an increase in housing stock.
1: To give you an idea, that's 18,000 homes in the New Zealand context, where we have about 1.8 million households, and uh, that you know, 18,000 uh, homes would be almost half, if not more, than half of a usual year's uh, consents. So that's a that's a big number, and actually provides a chance for this huge amount of uh, patient capital. We keep forgetting uh, New Zealand may not have a culture of people saving through uh, institutions for the long run, although KiwiSaver and the New Zealand Superfund have changed that in, in the last 10 to 20 years. But overseas, that is a big chunk of capital if only we could get it into rental property.
0: It is. I mean, there are some challenges still around returns, um, and that's largely in New Zealand driven by our very high uh, construction costs. Yeah, So, you know, 2 to 4% return is one thing. 02 point two to 04 point <laughs> four is not going to be a winner in anybody's book, no matter how long uh, the period and how many cycles it's, it's based over. So um, it, that's where I guess the issues around depreciation, GST and interest deductibility becomes so important. I mean, the thing is, you're not going to gear this, this property massively, but when you're talking two-tenths, it matters, you know, uh, and similarly with depreciation and similarly with the GST portion of it.
1: And the ability to welcome in international capital because in Sydney and Melbourne, one of the reasons their apartments around their CBDs are so cheap is there was a lot of capital that came in, particularly from China, in the last ten years or so, that's triggered this building boom, which has meant that for a lot of young New Zealanders who maybe don't can't aspire to their own homes but need to go and work in Australia and get forty percent higher wages, they can also get potentially lower, rents in Sydney or Melbourne uh, certainly compared to Wellington and are able to you know, save a chunk of money and come home if that's what they want to do.
0: Yeah look the other big thing about that is the hidden cost of having to move frequently you know again in my two and a half years of touring around Tamaki Makoto Auckland with my stuff in a trailer it cost me money you know, I wasn't paying moving companies but you're paying your friends and beer uh, to float your belongings from one house to the next you know, there are hidden costs in that whereas if you you stay in the same home for seven years uh, your ability to actually build up your capital base for whatever purpose you want to put it to is significantly enhanced similarly at the other end of your um, home management ownership occupancy career you don't want to have to be worried you know again our buddy Bob up in Albany uh when you're in your late 60s and the hot water cylinder goes and you're on a fixed income, really nice to know that you can pick up the phone to a very efficient property manager who will get it sorted, uh, and the five to $7,000 bill is not your problem.
1: And that's going to be a big issue in the next 20 or 30 years as a lot of people who currently don't own get to the point of retiring and having a New Zealand superannuation payment, which is fine because it's designed for people who already own their own homes. And one of the concerns expressed by the Retirement Commissioner and others is that we've got this wall of pensioners' rent stress coming. And this is one way in which it can be um, ameliorated somewhat.
0: Absolutely. And that's, you know, there's a ticking demographic time bomb there uh, and Unless we are going to massively ramp up the state's role in providing those kind of homes, and we're talking about homes where the only thing that the person in those homes will need from the state is somewhere to live. Uh, You know, there is a big spot in the market, in the housing continuum, in my my belief, um, for that presence of institutional capital uh, and that affordable to market market. Long term, stable, secure tenure rental. So
1: it was somewhat surprising when the Inland Revenue and the Treasury, who are good and pure and simple people with very um, pure motives and a very pure approach to dealing with tax, came out and said that they thought it wasn't fair that the uh, uh, exemption on the uh, interest deductibility rule be extended to build to rent. And what surprised me in looking at the... Uh, coverage of this, is that at least Treasury, it's maybe not I- IRD's job, their, their job is to um, fight like, like a-
0: Te uh, <laughs> it's in the name. <laughs> That's right.
1: And to fight like a like a mother tiger to protect these, those cash flows coming in. But Treasury, Treasury are supposed to be taking a longer term view. And I'm sort of surprised the benefits around uh, reducing churn rates, if you like, not just for older people, but the kids as well, who are having real issues with transients in schools because of private rental turnover, and and of course that um, improvement in the actual uh, uh, well-being of people who are in these homes that are well managed, uh, that are better maintained, and that also. Uh, much more designed as places to live rather than just a, a house to plonk people in before you sell it, sell it on. Um, I know not all landlords <laughs> you know, are like that, but um, because those what appear to be intangibles, they're very tangible in terms of health costs, uh, you know, justice costs, education costs, lost productivity costs for those 100,000 to 200,000 kids who are currently at the moment um, struggling uh, a bit and this could help them out. Oh, I wonder What's what's going on here? What, what, why the purity?
0: Look, I just think that the wellbeing deficit is not visible. Therefore, the wellbeing benefit's not visible either. We actually have a real paucity of data on our rental market, quite frankly. You know, the only info that you get on rentals is perhaps off the, um, the Trade Me rental data. And uh, off the MB bonds, what that misses is the same store sales. So you know, when somebody's rent goes up uh, by twenty bucks a week, you don't lodge another eighty dollars worth of bond. So there's that's invisible. Um, there's no visibility of the vacancy rate or otherwise. So it's you know this and this that churn rate is again it's not something that's measured. Nobody knows how many of these households are being disrupted every year. Yeah. I know because I've drilled into my data, uh, but it is not something that's measured or reported or captured anywhere. So is that
1: something you're, you're confident to to release the the numbers on on what the churn rates are? And that oh, sort of I thing?
0: talked about it at the conference. Here. Yeah, we're seeing five percent of our portfolio in the last twelve months yeah. sold. Uh, therefore, you know some of those will have been disrupted households. Um, some of them will have been natural churn. Hey, the tenant's moved out. It's good time to. Think about it, um, but then another two percent of them, uh, where the landlord has chosen to move back into their home. You know, so I guess that there's no data to tell people that this is happening. Uh, so you don't have a measure to go. Oh, if we were able to reduce the involuntary churn factor from say seven percent to three percent, um, what would the wellbeing benefits be of that? Because neither of those things is measured.
1: Helen O'Sullivan from Crocus, a CEO of Crocus. Thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you, Bernard, for having me.
1: When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better
0: off. Kia ora e tewi. Kiahi Butler here, podcast manager at the Spin Off.